following sermon is from Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you've never reached out to Calvary before, we'd like to hear from you. Visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. And now, here's Dr. Dan. If you have your copy of the scriptures, join me if you would in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. I want to talk to you this morning about the reliability of the Bible. We're in the middle of a series on the Bible is reliable. Reason number two, you know that the Bible is reliable because it is accurate. Because it is accurate. In 1966, Time magazine had a shocking moment. They produced a magazine and on the cover it asked the question, Is God dead? What was the reasoning for the question? The reason for the question was, Is God dead? was that they were convinced that we now know, because of science, that we don't need God to explain the existence of the world. And so, while you rubes in flyover country, you can keep going to church, we're not going to stop you, but all of us who pull the levers of power, we know better. And so, God is... Well, we're saying it in a question, but we're saying God is dead. And a funny thing started to happen as time unfolded and science continued to do its work. I'm going to share with you a little bit of details about this, but some science has come along that's actually confirmed the reliability of the creation account. But actually the headline is not so much that it's happened because it's it's been happening for decades. The headline is that most Christians don't know about it. And so one of the things, there's a, there's a guy you should, I really recommend you check out his book, is by a guy named Eric Metaxas. He wrote a book called, Is Atheism Dead? And he started with that whole new, uh, uh, that magazine that said, Is God Dead? And he said, there's a thing out there called the, the fine-tuned universe, and it's one of the arguments for the existence of God. And basically he says, there's, they started to study science, and they said, huh, it's almost like everything was put in place on purpose. For instance, the moon, if it wasn't so close, you know that the moon regulates the wobble of the earth? And if it wasn't doing it the way it is currently doing it, we wouldn't be able to have an atmosphere. Translation, we couldn't keep living. Jupiter and Saturn, they function something like giant cosmic vacuum cleaners that suck asteroids and comets out of, out of, so they don't destroy us. They suck it into orbit, they dissolve in, in, the, in Jupiter and Saturn, and they don't destroy us. Praise the Lord. And they, there's like 200 of these, and the way it was explained to me was this. It was like all these little knobs and dials, and there's like 200 of them, and they're all perfectly set. But if you mess one of them up, we're all gone. And so people started to say, well, that's, that's, we know better. We know we're here on accident and, and dumb luck and random chance, but it almost looks like things were put there on purpose. And so compelling, in fact, some of the world's atheists have actually, after studying, because they were following the facts, concluded there must be a God. Well, welcome welcome to the party. One of my favorite uh, quotes from a book is by a guy named Dr. Robert Jastrow. He is not a Christian. He would probably be in the category of agnostic. He has a PhD in, in astrophysics. I'm going to move off the science here in a moment. But he's describing all of these scientific findings after they concluded that the Big Bang explains the existence of everything. By the way, God spoke, bang, it pops into existence. 
He described it this way, quote, For the astronomer, the story ends like a bad dream. You're climbing the scales of human ignorance, pushing back the frontiers of ignorance. You get to the top of the cliff, and there sits a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Welcome to the party. Yes, God spoke, and nothing exploded and created everything. Yeah, God spoke. And so what we as Christians, this is all I've ever known. I grew up in public schools where I was told I evolved from monkeys and it was okay if you went to church, but we know. We pull the levers of power in the world. You evolved from monkeys whether you like it or you don't like it. You have to learn to live with it. That was Ric Flair, not from the science books. But one of the things I want you to understand is from this. The Bible actually, if you give it enough time, science catches up and then they realize, oh, because the Bible was reliable after all. But this morning we're going to talk about the reliability of the Bible itself. Are the people who wrote the Bible reliable? If you and I were to take a trip to Jerusalem and went to a place called the Dome of the Rock, there's a temple there. It's called the Dome of the Rock, and they have scriptures from the, from the Koran written in there. And one of the scriptures says this, God is not begotten, neither does he beget. So if you know John 3.16, Jesus said, the only begotten Son... You know that's a direct refutation of, of what the Scriptures teach us. The Muslims believe that Jesus is a great prophet. They deny that he is the Son of God. So when you write things like that, what you are doing is saying the New Testament writers are not reliable sources. Jesus appeared to be dead. He wasn't actually dead. Or he appeared to be on the cross, but it wasn't really his body. And on and on it goes. There's all of these arguments. The, the, the New Testament, the Gospel writers ate bad Chinese food, and they had a dream. There was hundreds of them. Hundreds of them had a mass hallucination. Can I say this? I was at a Pink Floyd concert, and while some might have been hallucinating, they weren't all seeing the same thing. That was 1994. I was 17. <laughs> I wasn't always a preacher, okay? There's a lot of arguments that people say with such passion, but they're actually really stupid ones. 500 people had the same hallucination on the same day. 12 men were willing to die for, for telling this story wherever they went. That is what happened to the early church. Why does this matter? Well, we're talking about the reliability of the New Testament. I will give you one more example of why this matters, and then we'll move into our text. The, uh, the Mormons have a book called the Book of Mormon. And there are statements in it about the United States that have been demonstrated to be false. Such that, for, for instance, it has been said that there were elephants here. Well, they are in zoos, but they weren't roaming the United States. There are, they said there was silk in Latin America. There was not. And on and on it goes. And the, what it did was it began to call the Book of Mormon into question. Now, I'm not a detective, and I don't even play one on TV, and most of you don't. Some of you have maybe done some detective work. But imagine that you were interviewing a, a, a suspect, and he says something like this. Well, I was driving down this road, and then I saw this at this house. And you go, wait a second, that's a country road, and there's not houses for miles. Hmm, that's questionable. And he says, well, I was with so-and-so, and you're like, wait a second, so-and-so has a credible alibi. He was in Chicago, not Danville, on the night of the a crime. What you are seeing is, hmm, this guy doesn't have his, he may not be lying, but his facts don't line up. 
Now here's what I want you to get. If the Bible, if the facts don't line up with reality, we have an unreliable witness. But catch this. What I want you to see this morning is that we know the Bible is reliable because it accurately describes the ancient world. Join me if you would in Acts chapter 17 verse 16. First thing, Luke accurately describes Athens. And I'm going to pause at various times as we read and I will comment as we go. Luke accurately describes Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Pause. Now, here's what's happened. Here's the backstory. While Paul was in Thessalonica, he preaches Jesus, and some Christians, some people become Christians, and then some Jews there get angry and they run him out of town. This is actually a recurring theme in the book of Acts. Paul preaches, people get saved, the other people get mad and chase him off. So he goes down the road to Berea and he starts preaching Jesus again. People get saved. Then word gets back to Thessalonica. Hey, that guy you ran out of town, he's over in Berea preaching Jesus again. And they're believing in him. So they travel from Thessalonica to Berea to beat him up. In fact, so serious was the threat that instead of taking the normal road that you would have traveled, he traveled by himself, number one, which is risky in those days. He also took the back road. I guess he figured he was he would try his luck with the marauders rather than risk going where the other the bad guys who wanted to kill him knew he might go. So he takes the back road. He leaves uh, Silas and Timothy in Berea. Apparently they left those two alone. And he goes on to Athens. And he shows up there and he's like, what is this? Now Athens is known the world over for its beauty, but it's also known for its idolatry. There's idols everywhere. Uh, there's an idol to, there he is, that's Hermes, I think. Um, I'm not an expert on, on the statues, but that's Hermes. And they had a little title for statues. They called them Hermea. And this is everywhere in Athens. Paul, who is a strong Christian, knows that right off the bat we have idolatry, breaks the first commandment. He is grieved in his spirit. So he, he can, at verse 17, it continues. He, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things are mean. Now here's what's going on. I want you to catch this. Paul preaches Jesus to the Jews in the synagogue, and then he goes to the Gentiles at the marketplace. And I want you to understand something. One thing he's doing, and this will kind of come up a little bit more as we go along, he's contextual. He's going to contextualize the truth. What that means is when he goes to the synagogue, he preaches a certain way to Jews who know the Old Testament. But when he's dealing with Gentiles, he doesn't change the truth. He doesn't pervert the truth. But he doesn't begin with the assumption that they know the Bible. He assumes that they do not. Or if they do know some of it, not enough to really have a, a, a build a bridge with them. But he begins where they are, but he doesn't change things. But what I really want to point out today is that in all those five verses, there are five statements that can be verified for accuracy. Five statements that can be verified for accuracy. First off, it says that there were idols there. Well, Athens was known, well, was well known to be full of idols. So right off the bat, what I want you to catch is he makes statements about the place 
that are verifiable. So if what Paul Luke is writing is not true, then you have called into question the Bible's reliability. You can, I think on the next screen it'll show all of these I'm listing off. A second thing is in verse uh, 17, there was indeed a synagogue in Athens. Well, we take it for granted because we're used to reading the Bible, but the truth is uh, you had to have A, enough Jews and enough Jews with enough money to support a synagogue for one to even exist. Luke is correct. There is a synagogue there. Third thing we see is that Luke accurately describes Athenian life and the philosophical debates that took place in Athens. They love doing it. We'll see more of that as we go along. He mentions the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans uh, were the intellectual elite. The people of the community didn't really like the Epicureans, but they are kind of similar to many modern agnostic, atheistic type of people today. They wouldn't necessarily deny the existence of God, but they lived like God didn't exist. And the whole purpose of life was to avoid pain. And you know, so let's not get triggered by anything. We're going to avoid pain, anything that's going to upset us, and we're going to pursue pleasure. Sounds a bit like America. Pretty relevant. And so that was the Epicureans. They were... They didn't have a lot in common with Paul. They weren't concerned about morals. They had loose moral character. And then the Stoics were more like Paul. Uh, they were in con- concerned with morality, but they also uh, were not Christians. We'll say it that way. They were pagans. They worshipped all the other gods. And so Luke accurately portrays the philosophical debates. Also in verse four, this is a one. This is a strange one. There is actually a slang term that was used in Athens that Luke couldn't have known had he not been there. Spermologos, only time it's used in the New Testament. And it means preacher of foreign divinities. It's not a common word, but it was used in Athens. And it shows up in the text because Luke is trying to be a careful and accurate historian. Fifth thing, there was indeed a place called the Areopagus in Athens, and it was a place where all the intellectual elite of the community, you had, you couldn't, you, you had to be a male and you had to be an intellectual elite. Otherwise, you weren't welcome into the Areopagus. And so that's where Paul goes, but Luke gets all five of these details correct. Luke describes Luke's ministry, or Paul's ministry accurately, and he portrays the facts on the ground accurately. Because he is a careful historian. One of the more interesting stories in my nerd work that I do, I came across a story about a, a, a professor of ancient Greek in ancient Roman world. He, his name is A.N. Sherwin White. He was an atheist. And he believed the Bible couldn't be trusted. But then he started to study what Luke wrote and what he wrote in the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke. And he's like, wow, he gets the facts right. And that began a turning point. What he recognized was that the Bible was actually trying to give you historically reliable statements. C.S. Lewis, I've, I probably mentioned him last week, but before he became a Christian, he was an atheist, and he's an expert in mythology. And he concluded, he was a professor of mythology, he concluded that the New Testament writers were not trying to give myths, but actually give history. And that began a study in his life. Because Luke the physician is so accurate and careful in his description of the facts on the ground in the ancient world, we have reason to believe that the Bible is reliable. If the facts that we can verify are incorrectly recorded by Luke, then we have reason to doubt. But Luke aced the test. 
And there's two more. He got all five right, but there's two more to come. In, in verse 21 to 31, Luke accurately describes Paul's preaching in Athens. Pick it up at verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. That is an accurate statement. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. I wonder if Luke had it right there. We'll come back to that. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Let's pause there. This altar to the unknown God. And what he's saying is that God that you worship in your ignorance, I'm going to tell you who he is. Was it really a thing? As it would turn out, yes. I have books. Some of them are older than others. And some of the older books didn't know this. But eventually, they were able to verify the existence of this altar to the unknown God. What is going on here? Here's what was going on. There was a a severe and a a long duration. There was a a famine in the land. And and they were trying everything they could to please the gods. They were uh, sacrificing. They were worshiping. But nothing was working. The gods were still angry. So they create a stealth there. So there must be some God that we're not worshiping and it's making him angry. So they create this altar to the unknown God. They put sacrifices on it and the famine ends immediately. This God that you worship in your ignorance, I'm going to clear if I'm going to, I'm going to disabuse you of your ignorance. I'm going to make sure you know exactly who he is. Let's continue. Verse 24. The God who made the world And everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to all mankind, life and breath and everything. Let's pause there. There is a boatload in those those few verses, few words. First off, he says, unlike your pagan gods, your pantheon of the gods, God doesn't need your stuff. In fact, there's a verse where God literally says, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you about it. I don't need you to go to the fridge and cook something up for me. I got it covered. In fact, it's you who need me. You need me. The the air you breathe, well, guess what? If our world was just a little bit different, it was just a little bit smaller, like just some small amount, like 2 or 4% smaller, we wouldn't have enough atmosphere. We wouldn't have enough oxygen to breathe. Don't worry, I don't need you to go cook up a hot pocket. I I won't ask you for help. But the gods that they worshipped were like people. They were jealous, they were greedy, they were unforgiving, they were petty. And if you didn't serve them in the right way, well, their plans could be foiled. Well, guess what? Paul is saying the God, that that this unknown God, he don't need your help. And they're all petty and unforgiving. Well, guess what? He gives life and breath and everything to all mankind. What is going on there? All right, Christians, we are usually very familiar with saving grace. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. Amen and amen. But theologians often talk about, well, they do talk about common grace. Jesus himself hints at this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, hey, don't just do good for the people that like you. And he says, so that you can be like your Father in heaven who gives rain to the just and the unjust. 
Now, as a kid, it's kind of like, oh, rain, rain's bad, you know, go, go away, but come again another day. But when you live in a farming community where life and death was, was, is, necessitates rain, well, guess what? What he's saying in the text is God sends rain on the wicked farmers and the good farmers. God is not, he, he's gracious to all, but here's the thing, you're far from him. That's, that's where he's going. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined all the allotted periods and the boundaries for their dwelling place. Pause. When I was in high school, because I always liked classic rock, I always thought, I must have been born in the wrong era. And I had a friend, Joey DeSalvo, he always wore this Bob Dylan t-shirt that said, American Poet on the top. And this is who my, these were my friends. We're, we're in the wrong generation or something. But what Paul is saying is, no, no, no. You live exactly where God wants you to live, when God wants you to live. He's in control. He is sovereign. He's not limited like these so-called gods that you Greeks are worshiping. Let's continue. And the, he determined the boundaries of, of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps fear, feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. Here's where he's going to contextualize truth. For in Him we live and move and have our being. Here's a question. Do you know what Bible verse he's quoting? If you say yes, you're lying. He's not quoting the Bible. He's quoting a pagan poem by a man named Aratus, and the poem is called Phenomena. He's quoting the pagans to build a bridge. They got one thing right, so we're going to use it. In him we live and move and have our being, even as some of our own, your own poets have said. So sometimes I quote music that I know you guys are not fans of. I got the idea from Paul. Just so you know. It's right there in the text. That's not a Bible verse he's quoting. For we are indeed his offspring. Now I want to point out something. He's describing God as being everywhere. Omnipresent. He's not limited like the gods of the pantheon. He's everywhere. But he's not the creation. He is distinct from the creation. I'm going to, I'm going to belabor the point because I'm making a point. So stick with me. God is omnipresent. It means he's everywhere, but he's also separate from his creation. A few years ago, I was asked to uh, analyze a song by a, a worship group. Analyze it for theological accuracy. And I was like, okay, well, I've heard about the controversy, so I, but I don't listen to their music, so why don't I... Sure, I'll sit down. I have a theological grid. I've been studying a while. And I, I'm reading along and I go, oh, Houston, we have a problem. Now in my generous side, I, I assume that they just needed more Bible teaching. But what they said was this. This is not a... You'd miss it because you, you weren't looking for it. I, would, I didn't know what I was looking at. God, you are everything. What does that mean? It means God's the pulpit. He's the trees. The birds that rest in the trees. The worms that the birds eat. He's the dirt. He's the air. That sounds good, especially when you're trying to contextualize and reach pagans. But it's not biblically correct. So Paul is absolutely contextualizing biblical truth, but understand something. If you and I are going to contextualize, we have to know and be committed to the Bible first before we try to contextualize it. Following? 
So I said, well, my response was, okay, I think maybe they just need a little more Bible teaching, but this part is wrong, and it's actually a major concern to me. So contextualizing is good, but you have to not mess up the Bible, and you'd have to know it in the first place. And Paul does. So when he brings in quotes from the pagan poets, he knows where they got it right and where they got it wrong and how it lines up with Scripture. One other thing is he's contextualizing. One thing he does not ever do is downplay sin. Let's continue. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image found by, formed by the art and imagination of man. Translation, unlike the gods you keep worshiping, who are just like men, with all of their sinful wickedness, God ain't like that. Bad grammar, I know, sorry, forgive me. Don't mean to offend you. Verse 30, the times of ignorance, he just called them ignorant, hello. The times of ignorance God overlooked. If you're reading the King James, it says winked at. I'm not sure which I like better. But he overlooked it. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, pause, repent. I try not to get real bent out of shape about what other people say and do when the Bible teaching in their Bible teaching ministries. But repentance seems to be lost when we're talking about salvation. And Paul is, in case you're missing it, he is putting the finger right on their pagan idolatry, which they love about themselves. Athens filled with idols, and he's saying, look, God overlooked it, but it's time to repent and worship him only. He's putting his thumb right on the problem. See, when somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ, we don't just say, believe this stuff about Jesus. What we're really doing is saying, yes, believe, but turn from sin and turn to Jesus in saving faith. Let's, t- let's take a step back. Do you really have to? What about we sinners, we, Christians, we sin after we get saved. There is a difference between pursuing holiness and failing and then getting back up and versus just saying from the outset, I am not going to turn from my sin. Could you imagine if I was a robber, a thief, and, I, and somebody said, all right, here's your sin is wrong, but you believe in Jesus. And I'm like, great, I'm going to believe in Jesus, but I'm not going to give up my stealing. Okay, hey, whoever your pastor is shouldn't baptize me because I'm not saved. Moving on. Verse 31. He calls everywhere to repent. Everyone to everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. How? By a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Did you catch that? Everyone like, most everyone likes Jesus. A few nut jobs are like, well, I hate Jesus, and let's bring him back to earth so we can crucify him again. I saw somebody with a sign of that. Most people at the very least like Jesus. He's a lily of the valley. You know, you Christians are so judgmental. Jesus wouldn't judge sin. Paul just said the one that can save you is the one who can judge you. Listen, if Dan Kinoy is the one that judges you, you got nothing to worry about. It might annoy you, but at the end of the day, I can't do a whole lot to you. And even if I could, I don't want to. That's God's business. But make no mistake, Jesus is described here as the one who judges sin. He's also the one who makes salvation from sin possible. I think he's quite qualified to judge. Listen, one of the things we worry about in our country is whether the justice system is biased or unbiased, and 
That's an important conversation in some places. There's probably some truth to all that. But Jesus can't be, he can't, he can't be bought. He knows the facts. He knows what you did last summer. I mean, he knows all of this stuff. Yes, that was a movie reference. He's portraying accurately what's going on here. He's gotten six out of seven facts. He's described Paul's ministry here. And now in verse 32 and 34, how are they going to respond? Well, Luke accurately describes how Athenians would respond to such a message. Verse 32 to 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So they're delaying. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Now if I'm writing the story and I'm wanting to fabricate, I'm pr- that's an unimpressive result, by the way. When you look at everything else that happens in the book of Acts, you know, it's like they were, people were being added to the church every day and there's 3,000 saved and all of this stuff. It looks like there's a couple people that we can mention by name. Everybody else seems to doesn't believe they're going to delay responding or they, they laugh at it. But what I want you to catch is this. Uh, Luke makes this enough, that's the seventh verifiable fact. He says that they mock the resurrection. That, from history, we know is a very likely response of the pagan philosophers. Now, if I'm making up the story, I'm probably going to say, all men looking, just about everyone believed. But when I read the results there, it's pretty kind of underwhelming compared to everywhere else. Why is it that way? Because Luke's trying to tell you the truth. See, God sent Jesus because he wants us to know him, to, to reconcile, be reconciled to him. But, and he ensures that the Bible is reliable because he wants us to know him. And he guided the Bible writers to ensure its accuracy. Because he wants to be known by us, he sent people to preach Jesus to us. And just as there was in Athens, there is always response. Some mocked, some delayed, and some believed. Today, some mock the Bible because it contains miracles. So what can we say about this? In the second half of the book of Acts, I'm talking from chapter 14 to 28, there are 84 verifiable statements about culture, geography, uh, the seas, historical persons, and events. Luke got them all correct. Now, when he mentions seaports, it's kind of boring. I'll be honest with you. Okay, here's an, especially when I'm trying to translate it from Greek, certain parts of Luke or of Acts are rather they're boring to me. Like we saw, we went here and went to this port and that port. Well, guess what? If he gets the details wrong, you know what it means? He's wrong. He's not reliable. But he doesn't have Google Maps to look all this stuff up. He was there. And he writes it down. Even down to like simple things like, okay, this was happening. We had this storm and we weren't sure how close we were to land because it was too dark. So we dropped anchor and took a sounding and we found it was this deep. Okay, that's a guy who's trying to tell you what really happened. And all the stuff that he said matches up with what we know from history, from studying all this stuff. Why is this important? Here's why it's important. You ready? 
If Luke correctly recorded all 84 things, the things that we can test and verify, then we should give him the benefit of the doubt on the things that we cannot test. I'm going to say that again. Here's why it is important. If Luke correctly records all 84 things that we can test and verify, then we should give him the benefit of the doubt on the things that we cannot test. And that includes the resurrection. Luke is a reliable historian. And so we have reason to trust that the other Gospels are correct because they tell the same story. Here is where the skeptics get nervous. The same book of Acts that includes 84 verifiable facts of history also include 35 miracles, including a man being raised from the dead, people who are crippled being healed, Peter's in prison for preaching the gospel, and, and an earthquake just happens to happen, and the prison doors fall off, and the shackles fall off, and they walk out to freedom to continue their ministry. It just happened. The resurrection is mentioned. And, and so this makes the skeptics uncomfortable. If you are skeptical about the claims of Christ, the, the Bible is being reliable, I want you to know this. God has given you reason to believe in Jesus and be saved. The facts in the text are reliable. Sometimes, like in 1966, the experts come out and they tell us, you know, look, you can believe that stuff, just keep it at home, but we all know, we who pull the levers of power, we know your God's not real. But then you give it time and they start finding, sure enough, this story's ending like a bad dream because there's no way this could have happened on accident. But we're not going to tell everybody. My hope this morning is that you as Christians would start to go, whoa, it's good, good to know the Bible is reliable. When I was in college, I'm telling you, I got my faith was attacked numer- repeatedly. In college, hey, look, you're, you're, you're just... You guys aren't special. You're descended from monkeys, okay? And you study long enough and eventually they catch up. There's all these things the archaeologists 100 years ago said never happened and then they died off and the study kept on and sure enough, he was right. The same holds with medical science. I'm going to give you one more. And I can't pronounce the medical term correctly, but you can look up for yourself. When Jesus is about to be arrested, he's praying and he's sweating and sweating drops of blood. And so the skeptic comes along and goes, that's not possible. A, I believe in miracles, but okay, I hear your skeptical claim. And for a long, long, long time, it was believed that that was not correct. And here's one of the things about medical science that, okay, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor and I don't play, well, I have a doctorate, but I'm not a physician. And I don't play one on TV. But what academics and practitioners of medicine do is they write things called academic journals and they describe some of the cases they're seeing and what the, what the uh, symptoms are and all of this. And sure enough, as they start to communicate, they begin to realize, huh, this is a weird thing. Occasionally people have this rare condition where they sweat blood. Now Luke didn't know all that stuff. He just told you what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. What am I saying? There are some things that science today will tell you the Bible can't be trusted on, but you give it time, science will catch up. Your Bible is reliable because it gets the facts right. Some delayed in responding. They said, we'll hear about you more later. 
Maybe you're of that mindset. I've got time to respond. Well, I've, I've got a story for you. A few years ago, I was, I was, when I was living in Ellington, we got a friend from Ellington here. I, I got a phone call one Saturday morning from some Christians I knew when I, from a church I had served as youth pastor in Springfield. And they said, hey, I know Ellington's close to Poplar Bluff. Well, my dad's in the hospital. He's dying. Would you go share Jesus with him? I said, absolutely. And she said, well, you got to know, I don't want you to go in there unprepared. He's always resisted in the past. He probably won't want to talk to you, but will you go anyway? Absolutely. Well, here's one other detail you got to know. My sister, who claims to be a believer in Jesus Christ, is there. And she won't let you talk about it. I said, I'm going to go anyway. Now, leaving aside the insanity of that, because even if dad is getting healed and your attitude is, we're not going there now because dad's going to get up out of this sick bed. Guess what? He's going to die someday. So I go and I'm, I'm, I'm ready. You know what? As soon as he fit, right, realizes who I am and after I introduce himself, he brings up spiritual conversation with me. He's interested. Never was before. You know what happened? The daughter intervened and there was no possibility of having any meaningful conversation about salvation. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Today is the day of repentance. Maybe this morning you've gotten enough from the Bible to say, I think it's telling the truth. I got news for you, it absolutely is. If it was accurate in the past, you can trust that it is accurate about the future. By the way, the Old Testament makes future predictions that came true. There's one more prediction that Paul mentions in there. He said there's a day coming when, when Jesus will judge us all. You, are you ready for that day? You can be. There's a promise in the book of Acts. It comes from other places in the Bible. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This morning, if you're at the place where you say, I know that I'm a sinner, I've broken God's rules. And I believe that Jesus did die on the cross for my sins. Listen, there are people, and it even shows up in Acts, they believe, but they don't give their life to Jesus. Today's the day. Turn from sin, turn to Jesus in faith. He didn't stay dead, he rose from the dead. So that you can be saved. And if you'd like to be saved, I want to give you an opportunity to do that before we play our last song of, of, of response. If you'd like to receive Jesus, I'm going to lead us in a simple prayer. No magic in my prayer. It's just a simple way that we've come to know that a person who is turning from sin to Jesus in faith can call on the Lord and be saved. If everyone bow their heads and close their eyes, we're going to pray and then Chad and the team will lead us in a song of worship. Dear God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I have broken your rules in ways I don't even realize. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross in my place to pay for my sins. And that He rose again the third day. And in this quiet moment of prayer, I turn from sin, turn to Jesus in faith. Thank You for hearing me, Lord. Please save me. Please help me to follow Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, 
calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. Thank you for listening.